Well, this morning, I, I want to focus on baptism. Baptism. Um, we're not going to do this just from just one passage. However, we will be spending quite a bit of our time in the book of Philippians. But first, let's pray, and then we'll begin looking at this important subject. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you show us the glory and the majesty and the beauty of Christ today from your word so that we will love and fear and serve and own him joyfully and fearlessly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the primary verses by which Christ commanded baptism for those who become his disciples is, of course, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, many of you are familiar with that verse, but please put your eyes on it yet again. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, this is after his resurrection, and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's from this verse that we see that baptism indicates ownership. It indicates ownership. Baptizing in the name of, it indicates becoming a true possession of the triune God. But not only does he own you in baptism, you own him. Baptism indicates to the world and to ourselves that we are not our own, but that we have been bought with a price and we are now identified with Jesus Christ. This one with all authority, he commands that all his followers identify themselves with him through baptism. Baptism is the clear an undeniable way that the Lord commanded for a person to publicly forsake all other allegiances as lesser and declare Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. Now, still by way of introduction, I want us to take a look at Peter when he preached his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and let's look down at verse 22. And he says here, chapter 2, verse 22, this is in the midst of his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hand of hands of godless men and put him to death. 
But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So here, we see Peter grounding the gospel in the person of Jesus. He, he points to his works. He then points to the cross. He points to his death. He then points them to his resurrection. See, this is the historical basis of the Christian faith. Christianity is not blind faith. Your faith is rooted in facts. It, it's a belief that the testimony about Jesus in the Gospels is reliable. It makes clear that Jesus is not only the Messiah who God promised through the prophets to send to deliver His people, but that He is God Himself. And He has made salvation possible through His atoning death on the cross. Christ died for our sins. And then three days later, God raised him up again, demonstrating his power over death. And then hundreds of witnesses testified to seeing Jesus alive from the dead. In other words, this really happened. And the salvation that Jesus secured by his death and resurrection, it's offered as a gift then to be received by faith. There's nothing you can do to earn or, or to merit this salvation. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, this is good news for sinners. Christ has made the way for you to be forgiven, to be rescued from judgment, and to gain eternal life, and then to be with God forever. Now, look down with me a few verses down to verse 36. In between what we just read and these verses beginning in verse 36, Peter is showing that Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Christ. See, that's why you believe in Him. Because He fulfilled these prophecies. Through it, in fact. He showed you that He fulfilled fulfilled these prophecies. That's what he said to them. He was attested to you by God. And so then he can say to them, as he does in verse 36, therefore, in light of the fact that he's being attested to you by God, and you can see for yourselves that he fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, and they knew it was true, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 41, he says, so then those who had received His Word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It's hard for us to imagine. On that day in Jerusalem, 3,000 Jews clearly and 
undeniably identified themselves with Jesus of Nazareth, a man whom Rome had just publicly executed to appease the Jewish leaders. And the only way that these Jews, the only way that these Jews would do this is because they were convinced from the evidence of Jesus' words and deeds, His death and His resurrection, that He truly was the Christ foretold in the Scriptures and there was salvation in no other name. And so their baptism, their baptism was the public declaration that the wait is over. God's Savior had come. And His name is Jesus. And by their baptism, they were publicly declaring, I belong to Jesus. Now still, by way of introduction, turn to the Apostle Paul. And we see that he, he clearly communicated the Lord's command that we read earlier in Matthew 28. To be baptized, to baptize those who believed that Jesus was the Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, it relates how on Paul's second missionary journey that he preached the gospel to some people in the Roman city of Philippi. And those, he says, who were saved. He baptized. Look at verse uh, 14, Acts 16, verse 14. He says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, right? So he carried out the command that Jesus had given to baptize, to make disciples and baptize them. Look at verse 30. So this is um, Acts chapter 16, verse 30. Paul and Silas had been thrown in jail. But now see what happens. It says after, in verse 30, after the Philippian jailer brought then Paul and Silas out of the jail, right, and the whole earthquake had happened and, and so forth, all this had gone down. And then the Philippian jailer says to them, Sirs, now they're sirs. After he sees what's happened. They're sirs now. They're not just prisoners. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your, whole, and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. So Paul here, he's... He's carrying out Christ's command to make disciples. Baptizing them, teaching them about Christ, how to live for Christ. And those who believed the gospel were owning Him publicly in baptism. See, when it comes to baptism, there are a number of important truths that we could be encouraged by. But this morning, to encourage those who desire to be baptized as well as to remind those of us who have been baptized, I want to present how we are identified with Christ in baptism. I want to do so by looking at the letter that Paul wrote to 
Those Philippians who had believed in Christ, like Lydia who we read about here, that jailer who we read about, those who were in their households, and many others, they'd already been baptized in Christ's name. Baptism is external. It's visible. It's a ceremony. You're not saved by this ceremony. No ceremony can save you. So baptism is an external and visible ceremony, but it is a ceremony that points to something. It points to something internal. It points to something invisible in a sense. And I say in a sense because actually what is internal and invisible should be external and visible too in your life. But see, what it points to is your faith in Christ, that He is who He says He is. That His death and His resurrection accomplished for you what you are trusting it to do. That it really happened and your trust is in Him and it says, I want to be identified with Him. And I want to give all of us a clear picture of what that is by looking at how Paul describes these Philippian believers. And what I want to show you is this. It's that baptism is how Christ commands His followers to identify themselves as fellow partakers of God's grace, fellow participants in Christ's suffering, and fellow partners in gospel ministry. Now, while Paul was under house arrest in Rome, his mind went to his Philippian brothers and sisters and he might have thought of Lydia, right, when she, back when she was first baptized. And perhaps with, with a slight smile on his face, he remembered the fear on the, on the face of the jailer and how it was replaced by joy when he spoke the Word of God to him and he believed and he was baptized, he and his whole household, by which he means those who heard and believed the Gospel. Now, even though he was facing the very real threat of execution, Paul's concerns for his fellow brothers and sisters who were also, along with him, courageously following Christ. And they were facing their own struggles. And he longed to encourage them to be faithful to Christ, no matter what the cost. How would you react if your pastor was imprisoned for preaching Christ as the only true God? Even though he baptized you, perhaps you would disown him out of embarrassment, out of shame, out of fear of repercussions. Right? If someone challenged you about your pastor, you might say, oh, you know, I don't really know him that well. I, I went to his church a couple times, but, you know, he was always a bit extreme. And then again, maybe you would find the strength to stand together with your pastor. You might send him gifts or letters of encouragement. You might... Pray for him. You might accept the persecution of the authorities and, and defiantly continue to preach the same message he preached about Christ. Perhaps you would say, yes, yeah, yeah, my, my pastor is in prison for preaching Christ and they can come and lock me up too if they want because I'm not going to stop confessing the truth that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord of all. See, what would you do? I want you to think about 
what would you do? See, you have been baptized as a follower of Christ. You who desire to be baptized as a follower of Christ, what would you do? See, Paul opens his letter in Philippians. We can turn there now. The book of Philippians. He opens this letter with a prayer of great joy because the Philippians are standing firm together with him for the gospel. He says in in verse 5, he says, from the first day until now, right up until the time that he's penning these words to him, he says, you've been standing with me faithfully. The Philippians didn't disown him. They didn't abandon their imprisoned pastor. They stood with him. Paul keeps referring to this faithful partnership in the gospel throughout the letter. He calls it a fellowship. Now, there's three ways that he describes their fellowship with him, which I think they provide us a great picture of three ways that these Philippian Christians have truly identified themselves, not just with Paul, more importantly, they have identified themselves with Christ. To identify yourself with Jesus Christ is first to identify yourself as a partaker of God's grace. You are a partaker of God's grace. Grace is is a constant theme in the Bible, especially within the New Testament. It speaks of favor, blessing, kindness, See, you and I, we can extend grace to others. But see, in relation to God, it is is much more significant. Grace is God choosing to bless us rather than curse us as our sin deserves. It's His kindness to the undeserving. Really, to the ill-deserving. Now, in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 7 one of the chief reasons that Paul gives thanks to God is because it's obvious that these men and women are fellow partakers of God's grace. He says in verse 7 there, you are all partakers of grace with me. It's absolutely clear by how they have stood beside Paul in his imprisonment that they too have been overwhelmed at having received the same grace, the same undeserved kindness of God as Paul has, And it's the same grace that causes Paul to serve Jesus Christ with such zeal and such abandon that he can honestly stare straight at the possibility of death for the sake of the gospel. And without hesitation, he says, as he does down there in verse 21, he says, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. He knows that he is not alone in his devotion to Christ. These ordinary believers in Philippi, they're right there with him in devotion to the one who showed such grace to them. Paul mentions two aspects of that grace that all have received. The same two that uh, aspects that overwhelm all 
who follow Christ with the same zeal and the same abandon. See, a person who has partaken of God's grace and desires, therefore, to identify himself with Christ through baptism, he sees himself, firstly, as one who has been given Christ's righteousness. See, if you are a taker of God's grace, you are one who has been given Christ's righteousness. Look at verse 9. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Like Paul, those in the church in Philippi, they were looking forward to the day when, when Christ, by His death and resurrection, that they would be counted pure and blameless and filled to the brim with the fruit of righteousness. That day was still coming. They were not standing with Paul because they thought it would make them more acceptable to God. Like Paul, they understood that the only thing that secured their right relationship with God, it was not any righteousness of their own. It was Christ's righteousness graciously given to them. If any amongst them had reason to boast before God and declare himself righteous, it would have been Paul. But the gospel that he preached, the judge all his efforts and his strivings for righteousness is pathetic, pointless, useless, garbage. In chapter 3 of Philippians, he, he speaks of how he was a... Here's all the Hebrews. Here's me. of the Hebrew of Hebrews. And as a Jew, Paul's zeal for the law of God, it was, it was unmatched. But everything that he did in his zeal, it could never make him righteous in God's sight. He says in chapter 3, in verse 7, he says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Right? All those things that were gain, they're all gone now. And you know what they are? He says they're rubbish. And it was worth it because I gained Christ. And I'm going to be found in Christ. And it's not a righteousness of my own that I'm going to, that I'm going to be boasting on, like some, something that I received because I worked so hard at keeping the law. He says, no. He says, that, it's that righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is the gospel believed by all who follow Christ and all who wish to be identified with Him in baptism. A gospel about a suffering Christ who died, rose to bring righteousness and salvation to His people. Now, not only do we see Paul rejoicing that the Philippians see themselves as those who have been given Christ's righteousness, but also as those who are growing in Christ's likeness. See, a person who has partaken of God's grace 
and desires to be identified with Christ through baptism, he desires, secondly, to be one who is growing in Christ's likeness. You desire to be one who is growing in Christ's likeness. In order to encourage the believers there in Philippi, he says now back in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, before Christ, you didn't want to be like Christ. Being like Jesus was boring. It was weak. Oh, but for those who have partaken of Christ's grace, they want nothing more than to be like their Savior. And Paul is saying to them, he's saying, my brothers and sisters, I see Christ's work in you. And rest assured, He's not done with you yet. He's going to continue making you more and more like Him. See, to have such an observation made of you, oh, that brings a smile to the face of every person who desires to follow Christ. You are saying exactly what I want to hear, that I'm becoming more like Jesus. In fact, baptism, it's a way of saying, I want to be identified with Christ to such a degree that those whom God puts around me, they would see me and eventually realize that what they're actually seeing is Christ in me. Now take a moment and just let that sink in. Don't just keep thinking like baptism like you've always thought of it. Salvation is just something that you believe and you label yourself a Christian and then you just go do whatever you want to do and say what you ever want to say. Kind of came out wrong, but that would have meant. Take a moment and think about this. Your desire to be baptized is you saying, Christ has changed me. I don't live for myself anymore. My words, they're no longer just my words. I want my words to reflect Christ. And my actions, well, they don't represent me alone anymore. They need to also reflect Christ. And this means that amongst those who are around you, that there should be clear evidence of who you belong to. And if the Lord has recently saved you, then there should be clear evidence that a change of allegiance has taken place. Your words, your behaviors, your priorities, they should all reflect that you now live to please not yourself, not your friends, not the crowd, not even your own parents. You live to please Christ. And baptism points to this invisible reality that becomes visible through your outward behavior. So this was the gospel that Paul had preached to them. And by, by God's grace, this was the gospel that they had believed. Embracing this gospel of grace, the gospel of a Savior who suffered for their sake, also meant being willing to suffer like Christ Himself. 
and this is the next way that we see these Philippian Christians have truly identified themselves with Christ, they were willing to suffer like Christ and suffer for Christ. And in the same way, to identify yourself with Jesus Christ through baptism, it's to identify yourself as one who is willing to join in Christ's suffering. And the way that you identify yourself with Christ in baptism is, first of all, as a partaker of grace, and then secondly, is as a participant in Christ's suffering. A participant in Christ's suffering. Now, Paul does not merely speak of a willingness to suffer in Christians. He puts it even more strongly than that. He says that standing up for the gospel, being called to suffer for Christ, that it is itself a gift of God's grace. When he says here in verse 7 that they are all partakers of grace with him, well, look what he includes further. That this grace, he's not just talking about Christ's righteousness. He's also talking about suffering. Look at verse 7. He says, Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Look down at verse uh, 29. He says, For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, and there's the salvation, but to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So just as we see Paul calling these, remember these are ordinary, everyday Christians in Philippi. He's calling them to remain strong in their partnership with him in the gospel, to keep standing up for Christ in the face of hostility and persecution. And he's calling all who identify themselves with Christ to do the same. That means us. The person who desires to identify themselves with Christ through baptism is one who is living for his true king and living in light of the true kingdom. First, the one who participates in Christ's suffering is one who is living for his true king. He's living for his true king. Look down at verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So standing firm and striving together for the gospel in a face of opposition, it reflects what? You know the true king. And this knowledge, knowledge, it both softens and steals you. You can have a soft heart that's full of love for your enemies but you can also have a heart of steel not to compromise or bow down in the face of fierce opposition. This is because you know who your king is. And so you're living for him. Secondly, one who participates in Christ's sufferings is also one who is living in light of the true kingdom. It's one who is living in light of the true kingdom. Paul's phrase, conduct yourselves in a manner there uh, in verse 27. It means to live as a citizen 
The noun form of this word is in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. We all understand citizenship. We're all citizens of this country, assuming that of you. We're all citizens here. We have benefits as being citizens. We have blessings as being citizens. We have obligations as being citizens, duties and responsibilities. All of this is caught up in this idea of being a citizen. The Philippians knew very well that they were a Roman colony with all the privileges, the rights of being full citizens of the Roman Empire. But here Paul is reminding them that they have a greater king than Caesar. They have a greater citizenship than being a Roman. He says, your citizenship is in heaven. Live therefore in a manner worthy of that citizenship. Stand side by side as a united army fighting for that king, for his honor and to his glory. And this is true of every believer in Christ. Every person who identifies themselves with Christ through baptism. You are to live for the true king and the true kingdom, even when there is a cost. And you are to lock arms with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And with one mind, he says, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Why? Because all who identify themselves with Christ through baptism are identifying themselves thirdly as a fellow partaker in gospel ministry. Right? So all who identify themselves with Christ through baptism, they are identifying themselves, first of all, as a partaker of God's grace. Secondly, as a participant in Christ's suffering. And then lastly, as a fellow partner in gospel ministry. And you can see this partnership in how Paul writes to them. Those who Paul writes to, right? what are they? They're simply members of the, the church there in Philippi. They're ordinary believers. They're just like you and me. They're not the B team. They're not second string. They're not the JV squad. They're not Paul's support crew hovering behind the front lines. They were those who desired to follow Christ. And they saw him as worthy to be followed over their own self-interests, over their own priorities, and even more worthy than their own lives. If it came down to it. There's not a, this is not a description of a super-Christian. This is the basic definition of what it means to be a Christian. And if this doesn't describe you, then it's time to take a closer look at what you believe about Him. Are you truly following Christ as revealed in Scripture? Or are you following some easier, tamer, more worldly version of Jesus that didn't say things like this? Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. 
He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That's just the basic definition of discipleship. You can't follow Christ without saying amen to that. You know what he also said? He said this. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. You know what he also said? He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And you know what he also said? I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but for me. See, he's not one of many possibilities. All of the religions in the world are not just alternate ways to God who's over everything. Jesus separates himself out from everything else. All the other claims of a way of salvation. He says, I'm the way. I am the only way. And see, as a Christian, you have the privilege and you have the duty to proclaim this to a world that doesn't want to hear it. That gets angry and gets hostile when you tell them of their need to repent and to believe in this Jesus. But remember, you were once this way too. You were once his enemy. You were once hostile in mind. You were darkened in your understanding. But God had grace on you. He had grace on you through the gospel when you heard it and when you believed. And he will continue to have grace on others. And he will draw them to himself as you do what? Proclaim the same gospel. This is the Christ Paul knew. This was the Christ that Paul preached. And this was the Christ these Philippian men and women had put their faith in and they were following him. And so they strove together with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. They were engaged in the same conflict and struggle that Paul himself had experienced and was still experiencing because it was was the struggle that came with seeking to make this Christ known to others. And so it's through baptism that we identify ourselves as fellow partners in gospel ministry. Because this is a partnership... Paul brings out the importance, then, of unity in the congregation. So the person being baptized is identifying themselves as one who is striving together with humility. You're striving together with humility. 
As a partner in gospel ministry, Paul says, look at chapter 2, down at verse 14. Chapter 2. He says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. There's simply no place for complaining and grumbling and discord amongst those who are following Christ together. You've got to put aside selfish motives, petty rivalries. Why? So that you can strive together with your brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of the gospel and so that, therefore, you can shine like beacons in our dark world. Now, not only are are you to strive together with humility, but you, secondly, you are to be one who is standing together in hardship. Standing together in hardship. Paul rejoices that they're holding fast to the gospel, right? Um, He rejoices that they're holding fast to the gospel as partners with Paul. They've joined with him in striving for the gospel. They've also accepted in, they've accepted the sufferings that always followed this. And they have stood alongside him in his imprisonment. And they have spoken out, he says in verse 7, in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. See, they're standing together even in the midst of this hardship. Christ commanded baptism as the way those who profess faith in Him and desire to follow Him, how they are to identify themselves with Him. And in baptism, the Christian is identifying himself in three ways. As a fellow partaker of God's grace, fellow participant in Christ's sufferings, and a fellow partner in gospel ministry. So if you are one who has professed faith in Christ and desires to be baptized in obedience to Christ's command, this is how you are identifying yourself with Christ. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter how much you may feel that you still have to grow and learn. See, what matters is that you understand the grace that you have received and you are ready to partner with and suffer alongside your fellow believers in gospel ministry. The time to live for Christ is now. The time to die for Christ, well, that may come. We'll see. But see, whatever Christ has in store for you, Neither will lead to regret. Now, for those of you who have been baptized, I want you to think about how you are all ready to be living. If you have forgotten, if you have retreated, if you have compromised, 
If you have allowed yourself to be distracted by this world and believe me, that is all too possible. Now is the time for you to repent. To live again for the true king. And for the true kingdom. And for those of you who don't know Christ, on behalf of Christ, understand what you have been missing. What could possibly compel people to align themselves with one that leads to suffering? And not call that regretful. Not turn back. Not turn away. Not say this isn't worth it. What must that say about this one that you have not embraced in faith? says you don't know him as you need to. You don't understand who he is. See, Christ has the authority to freely offer you forgiveness. If you will acknowledge your sin and repent of them. And as I trust you've gathered from what you've heard, he doesn't offer you a life free of hardship, free of suffering. What He offers you, though, is an abundant life of purpose, of significance, of joy for all who see His worth. A worth that transcends life itself. So come. Come and find the joyful, meaningful experience that God intended your life to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for the grace towards us in Christ. You have not just saved us, but you have powerfully transformed us. Your word describes salvation as a a rebirth. Your word says that as a result of your Spirit's work in us, that we are new creations. And that means that which used to be true of us, our desires, our pursuits, our habits, our words, our thoughts, they can now change. They can be pleasing to you. And we can now love you. And we can now follow you and obey you and worship you and serve you. We can now love and serve others as we do ourselves. And our lives truly can be lights to others, showing them that the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ. How can we not love and serve and live for it and identify ourselves with this one who came to make all this possible? Do your work, Spirit of God, we pray.